This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. New York City with checkpoints around the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, We've also heard the World Health Organization come out and say that people will probably have to take precautions against COVID-19 for the next year as countries continue to vaccinate and, uh, and, and actually need some time to vaccinate their population. So just some of our headlines on this Tuesday. Let's bring in, though, with an interesting perspective on really our whole uh, wellness situation, if you will, against the pandemic. Let's bring in Dr. Rachel Dew. She's board certified doctor of natural medicine, and she's also the CEO of Modi Health. She joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. Dr. Dew, nice to have you here with us. Um, how are you? What has your world been like uh, on the West Coast and, and, and especially with your, some of your patients? Hi, Carol. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it has certainly been um, an interesting season, right? So we mm. are all having to make so many adjustments and transitions, not just in how we care for patients, but also how we care for ourselves in this time. So we're seeing a lot of those uh, adjustments and the need to be more flexible and to really take personal accountability. What does that mean, though? Break it down. So if I'm a patient and I'm listening to that, I'm sitting at home and I've got stresses of working, I've got stresses of taking care of my family. What are you telling me? Absolutely. So, look, you know, this pandemic, we have the the concerns around catching COVID-19. We have that. But also the pandemic has really caused an uptick in many other health crises, right? From mental health and emotional health to physical health, everything from injuries, illness, and chronic disease. And, you know, this is really due to patients avoiding in-person care due to safety concerns and putting off treatment and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So telemedicine has been providing a solution to meet these concerns. And now telecare is really easier and safer to access in order to get that continued care, right? So we're seeing this as a major uh, shift that that we've taken, we've needed to take in order to care for ourselves and also practitioners needing to care for their patients. But what we also see is that the need is greater now more than ever for a whole person care approach, really an integrative approach. And that really includes not only traditional health care prevention, but also well-being. Well, listen, and I'm going to be quite honest with you, you're, you're preaching to the choir because I'm someone who, who certainly believes in kind of that holistic approach when it comes to healthcare, having done yoga for 20, 25 years and, you know, believe in meditation and things like that, that you really do need to take care of your whole being. It's just not physically, you know, it's not just about physical ailments, but it's also about mental well-being. And I do wonder, you know, is there something about this time of crisis and its conversations that I've had, to be quite honest, with a bunch of my guests about are we looking at, you know, our health very differently? Will we come out of it being smarter in terms of preventive health and do, and thinking about kind of holistic care when it comes to our well-being? Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the positives that's coming out of this pandemic. What we're seeing, so at Modi Health, we're the only telemedicine 
and telewellness integrative platform in what, the industry. What does that mean? And, because there's lots of telemedicine out there. Sure. We've been talking about, we just talked with Susan Lyon yesterday. She's a venture capitalist saying, you know, that's one of the things that all of a sudden it has just taken off. So tell me about what that means, that integrative platform. Sure, absolutely. So while there are many telemedicine platforms out there, and there's a lot of wellness platforms out there, like health clubs are moving classes and yoga, as you mentioned, are moving classes online. There's really no marriage between the two of this holistic care and traditional care. So at Modi Health, on our integrative platform, we offer access to virtual care with both traditional medical practitioners, as well as complementary alternative and natural, and then also wellness, things like mental health practitioners, life coaches, fitness instructors, nutritionists, all of those different types of needs under one virtual roof to be accessed. And I think that that's what's critical right now. And we're seeing at Modi Health, so many people are focusing on wellness and prevention through a more holistic approach or a whole person approach to health. And so people uh, that are coming to our platform are really concerned about being as healthy and also as resilient as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah. who, well, who is your de- demo? Who comes to your platform? Every person you can possibly imagine. So we have, you know, all different types of care available for people that are younger demographic, millennials. We have baby boomers and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Really, the pandemic has created this massive need to shift and begin using online platforms to access care. So it's really invited people that may not have considered doing that type of care before. Um, It's really invited them into using and experiencing the ease and safety of telecare. Um, I totally get what you guys are doing. And I do think when it comes to healthcare, we do need to think about kind of top to bottom, (laughs) you know, all the layers that make up a person's well-being, right? And there's different forms of treatment. There's certainly, you know, traditional medicine, there's, you know, evolving medicine, there's just different things that are out there. And and you really do feel like it's maybe not one person, but multiple people who really have to look at someone and say, okay, here's, here's the, here's the, the, the full picture, right? And here's the different things you can be doing. Having said that, I do feel like kind of newer waves of thinking or newer ways of thinking uh, when it comes to healthcare, your traditional insurance companies aren't so great to embrace it at least not so quickly. So where are we on that? Absolutely. I am so glad that you brought this up. It's, it's something that I'm hugely passionate about. Um, so we have a unique approach at Modi Health since we are founded by practitioners. And mm-hmm. We really believe that patient care needs to shift. The patient care should be dictated by doctors, not health insurance companies. And right now, most holistic or alternative care, as you mentioned, is out of pocket, which not only limits access, but it really restricts access to those who are unable to afford that kind of care out of pocket. So at Modi Health, we've addressed that by making consults more affordable. But as we're shifting and as we are seeing this whole person care approach and we're seeing so much more research and data that is pointing to the future of health, including that type of whole person care, with the future of health insurance reimbursements, there's a huge market demand and that's only going to continue to grow. So insurance companies will eventually need to address this by increasing wellness care, 
complementary and alternative care coverage and also reimbursement. So we need to shift the focus on keeping people well versus just treating health crises and problems once they arise. So how do we do that? I mean, if anything, the pandemic has unearthed uh, and laid bare once again is the inequities that are out there, right? And it's it's easy maybe for some of us to say, okay, I, I, I can focus on well care, right? Uh, wellness care, because I've got the time, I've got employers who understand, and I've got a great health care plan. There are those folks who are just trying to, you know, pay the rent and keep food on their table for their families. And, you know, health care is often a emergency situation, if you will. And that's really important if we're going to raise the wellness of society. <laughs> so how do we deal with that? <laughs> Which is so Absolutely. important, that, right? I mean, yes, it, it we, we keep doing things that you know, people who are already in a good place get to kind of tap into. But it's if we're gonna if we're gonna learn anything from this past year, right? Is figuring it out how more people get to benefit from the successes of society. I completely agree with you. It's such a critical point. I mean, we're really seeing this shift when it comes to wellness and preventative and alternative care. We're seeing that it's becoming only accessible by the wealthy. So it's becoming, you know, a a social level of achievement to be able to access. But we've got to make this type of not only care, but life, healthy lifestyle choices and options more affordable and accessible to the masses. And, you know, I mean, that's something we're really passionate about. And we work really hard at Modi Health to do, you know, not only by making, you know, consults more affordable to live virtual care, but we've We've come up with some creative solutions, and, and really, it's going to take all of us doing, you know, putting our minds towards creatively solving this problem. So, you know, what we've done is we've created a health streaming service. So, where someone might not be able to afford meeting with a nutritionist or a personal trainer or a health coach, for example, um, they might be able to afford a nine dollar, you know, a month virtual streaming service that gives them access to all different types of health and wellness classes and health education and fitness classes. So it's really about getting creative in order to solve this. Right, which is what it's going to take. You know, it's interesting, the Bloomberg New Economy Forum was just held uh, virtually with global leaders. And one of the verticals, one of the pillars is all about health. And this whole concept of, you know, how do we learn from what happened this year in terms of the virus, but more importantly, too, is how do we fix some of those ailments, whether it's heart disease, whether it's lung disease, whether it's cancer, that, you know, certainly has an impact on people generally, but also holds back society from being even more prosperous uh, than it could be. So um, these are good conversations to have. Dr. Du, thank you so much. Um, Good luck. And and once you, you know, we'd love to hear back from you as you guys continue to proceed with what you're doing. Dr. Rachel Du, she is board certified doctor of natural medicine. She is CEO of Modi Health, uh, joining us on this Tuesday on the phone from Los Angeles. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Safe to say there are many heroes that have stepped up during this global health pandemic. And that includes this really cool story about a small army of data gatherers. Most of them are volunteers. And they have become perhaps the most trusted source on how the pandemic is unfolding in the U.S. Let's get into this story with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the phone in Brooklyn along with Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare team leader Drew Armstrong reporting once again for Business Week. Drew with another incredible story, Joel. Yeah, we like to keep Drew busy. Um, I I hope to have many more Drew Armstrong stories uh, in in our future. Um, This is one that um, 
he came to us with, and, and as we started talking about it, I was like, wow, this is uh, actually just a great story for the moment because these are basically data heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about the people behind the COVID tracking project. And at the beginning of the year, we didn't have any data about how many cases there were. And you would have expected the federal government to fill that void. And uh, federal government still not there. And these folks have just kind of kept it going. Um, so, Drew, uh, tell us more about who they are, what they do, and, and you know, I want to know more because you also did some of this data entry yourself, actually. Yeah, you know, it, it was a fascinating story to work on in part because I think that it really revealed some of the weaknesses with this country um, and, and its ability to react to a unknown crisis. You look at uh, disease agencies like the CDC, which I have to say are full of very kind, very smart people trying very, very hard. But when they were confronted with this kind of new unknown disease, it showed us how bad we actually were at being able to find out what was going on in the country. And this project was basically an effort to try and answer the question of, how hard are we looking for COVID? Um, and this was back in early March. And how much of it are we finding? And what they began to discover as they did the really gritty work of just calling around states and scraping state websites and pulling data from states was that we weren't looking for it nearly as hard as we thought we were. And we didn't really have a great grip on how big the outbreak was or wasn't. Um, it's then evolved into this thing, which is a very authoritative authoritative source of statistics on how COVID is spreading, where hospitals are, uh, what the death count is, and things like that. But at the start, it was just fundamentally about asking, you know, what's going on and are are we finding as much of this stuff is actually there? Well, Drew, I got to say, as we all kind of pat ourselves on our back, you know, enter a couple of journalists and then uh, a really other smart investor, basically. Yeah, you know, I, the one thing I will say with these folks, um, and you mentioned there's there's um, a handful of journalists, Alexis mm-hmm. Madrigal and Robinson Meyer over at The Atlantic, who are kind of started a version of this. Um, uh, one of Alexis's college uh, friends was this guy, Jeff Hammerbach, who actually started the data team at Facebook. And they teamed up with um, a woman named Erin uh, Kassane, who essentially is a, you know, her, her job title kind of defies description, but she builds communities and works with tech tools and journalism. And what they eventually pulled together was a, a kind of a, basically just a Google sheet to go and start answering these questions and cataloging these data. But it took this really unique con- uh, combination of curious journalists, um, some serious data and numbers talent, and somebody who could help build the community they had. And the community is something that they emphasize over and over again. This thing is powered by volunteers, people who show up into their Slack room the only place this organization exists, and do the hard work of going to state websites and pulling this data every single day. And it's just a lot of work to be able to pull this together, but they've been doing it for nine months. Um, It's amazing that they built this kind of volunteer-powered engine to do this stuff that's basically data gathering day in, day out, um, to better understand this pandemic and bring some sense to it. And Drew, you raised your hand to actually help Enter some data. How'd that go? You know, I, this was wonderful of them. They really trusted me, and they said, "We want you to understand, you know, both what we do, how we do it, and also the culture that is behind this whole thing and the volunteer effort." So they invited me into their Slack. They put me through a data gathering training that they did with everybody else. So I was on a Zoom call with lots of other people around America. You know, seeing everybody's 
living room behind their computer uh, camera, just like I was. They taught me how to go through their process, and I worked a data gathering shift, um, you know, entering everything from the you know hospitalization data in Maine, um, you know, to what was going on in some other states. One of the things you realize when you do this work is just how disjointed that data gathering system is. Some states have wonderful portals that is, you know, updated every day. The definitions of what counts as a test, as a positive, so on and so forth, are very clear. Others are not at all. I mean, Hawaii, when I was doing this, the place you had to go to get the number of hospitalizations in the state was the tenant governor's Instagram account, which wow. when you think about a country like the United States, that's insane. Like, that is not yeah. where we should be getting this type of public health data. So, Drew, I also, let's just stay on the data for a second, because I, I think one of the things that they've also sort of done that you, you kind of talk about in the story is that they've actually sort of effectively helped standardize what the data is even. Can you talk more about, about that element of the, the story and the effort? Yeah, you know, one of the things that is really, really, really important that I think is hard to appreciate until you've tried to make sense of medical data is that it's vitally important that you have kind of standard definitions for what stuff is so that a, you know, uh, a test means a certain kind of test or do you separate out the different types of COVID tests that get run into different categories? And they ran across this problem of, you know, states didn't all report the same information. Sometimes they would report things that seemed like they were similar, but in fact were not. They started to give states grades, letter grades, basically say, okay, this state gets an A-plus for the type of data that reports this one gets a D. And the reason for that was they had someone on their advisory board who had worked in government who said, I know this seems stupid, but government officials really love grades. And, you know, when they started giving out these letter grades, one of the things they saw was that the states that had done well, they had public health officials and the governors out there saying, hey, we got an A+. They gave us an A+. This prominent website that everybody's looking at thinks we're really great. And they began to see other states make efforts to get more transparent, to get better about standardizing their data. Their data. They have helped kind of push along the quality of this data to better understand this. Listen, there's so many good moving parts in this story. I love where you say the project demonstrate uh, is a demonstration, excuse me, of citizen know-how and civic dedication at a time when the country feels like it's being pulled apart, right? So when all else fails and you feel like things aren't working, like you see the community come together and we understood that the importance of community, especially when it came to COVID, how important it was and to see them come together on the COVID tracking project is pretty remarkable and really makes you feel good ahead of this uh, Thanksgiving Day holiday. Um, Drew, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll put this story out on Twitter for everybody. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, along with Bloomberg News, U.S. healthcare team leader Drew Armstrong. Read everything that Drew puts out at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so this caught our attention. It's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. It's a top story on this Tuesday about how Amazon is doling out hiring bonuses as high as $3,000. It's all about making sure it has enough people to get through the busy holiday shopping season. So everyone's happy, right? Not so fast. Let's get more on this story, our go-to when it comes to all things Amazon. Spencer Soper, he's Bloomberg News technology and e-commerce reporter, follows Amazon really, really closely, and he's back with us on the phone in Seattle. Um, So, Spencer, good to have you here. So what's going on? Uh, So I guess we have an example of just how tricky the the job market is right now in terms of employers trying to keep people happy. So yeah, Amazon was, uh, you know, is giving out bonuses of up to $3,000 because it's got to get, make sure it has enough people to meet this uh, explosive demand in online commerce that just keeps uh, 
keeps growing, and this is going to be a record-busting holiday shopping season. But that that that's angered existing workers who have been toiling all along, mm-hmm. and you know many of them got uh, vouchers for turkeys, you know, as little as ten bucks. So there's this kind of disparity in in how Amazon's taking care of the existing workers who have been working all through the pandemic, and then the uh, the new recruits that they just need to get through the holiday shopping season. Not to be ungrateful, right? And we see this, right, where people get hired and they come in at one salary and then somebody comes in later and they get a better salary. Like this kind of stuff happens, but it does make you wonder about what Amazon is thinking that they're willing to do this and they know it's going to get out there publicly, right, about the discrepancies, you know, what were the, you know, inside conversations that that they had about this before doing it, knowing that there were going to be workers who are like, what they're getting three thousand, and I got a fifteen dollar turkey voucher. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point, and we don't even know if there were conversations like that because they're just right now they're just trying to manage through chaos and 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 meet demand. Yeah. And so uh, on these bonuses, they offer bonuses every year, uh, and so they're common. We just haven't seen them quite this high, this three thousand dollars. And so the um, the significance there and the new twist there is that even though a lot of people are out of work. They're still scared of COVID, and so Amazon's having to ratchet up the amount of money it will pay to compel new workers to come in, um, and then that's that's angering the exist the, the workers that are already there. Well, so how is Amazon, Spencer? You know this this company. You talk to a lot of people who are willing to go, you know, tell you what's going on behind the scenes. How is Amazon handling um, workers and making sure that they stay safe amid COVID? Amazon's been pretty public about that and all of these safety measures. You know, they're going to spend more than $10 billion this year uh, on a variety of things, including, you know, masks and um, temperature checks at the facilities and COVID tests of employees and stepped-up cleaning. But a lot of that cost is also simply lost productivity. Mm. And that's where, because of social distancing, these facilities that Amazon has that are already, you know, will be pushing capacity in a normal shopping season – uh, now are just not as productive because they have to space people out. So they're getting less work done in their uh, nor- in their normal facilities, and so that's putting an extra strain. You know, so not only mm-hmm. they have the the higher shopping demand on one end, on the other end, each of their facilities is less productive than it would usually be because of the need for social distancing. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, whenever I think about Amazon and just the amount of workers, especially as they continue to hire, and I mean, they hire like, I feel like nobody else out there in terms of the size of people that they continue to bring in to meet demand. I do wonder, you know, in terms of unionization, what progress or, you know, are there more steps likely to make it maybe a possibility here in the U.S.? It already, I think in your story, you point out it, it happens, it, it is unionized over in Europe. Yeah, they ha- they've avoided unions in the, in the U.S. There is a new drive that was just launched in Alabama. Uh, interestingly, Alabama is the place where they got $10 turkey coupons. I think that's the lowest that we saw. That we saw. Okay. But, um, so there's a, there's a new campaign down, down there. It's incredibly hard to form a union. Mm. Um, and, and there's a lot of tools that, uh, that employers can use to prevent unions from happening, um, up, up to and including just simply firing people, uh, even though it's supposedly against the law. The penalties are, are very soft. And so what you can often see happen is uh, if, if someone agitates for a union, a, an employer can simply fire them, and then that, that puts the onus on that worker to, to fight them. And, and the only real consequence for the, for the employers is to pay them back wages and, and rehire them. 
So I do wonder, come, I think they report next in late January, their next earnings report. And I do wonder, Spencer, I'm thinking as an investor, you know, how these increased costs of, you know, paying higher bonuses perhaps to get workers in, right? Because Amazon can't, can't meet demand unless they get the workers to show up. As you said, there's concerns about, you know, COVID obviously and social distancing. Will these costs, these higher bonuses um, end up showing up um, they're going to, right, on the expense line when it comes to reporting. And I do wonder how it impacts the company financially, potentially. Yeah, it, it is going to affect them. It is going to put pressure on their profits. Uh, they've projected that. They've said as much. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, investors are very tolerant as long as Amazon's still showing the strong growth. If Amazon can muscle through this uh, and w- with marginal profits but still take care of its customers and accommodate all of this growth, that sends a strong message to, to investors that, that this company can, you know, it, it is well run and can function through this through this pandemic without letting people down. It would be much more uh, significant long term to Amazon to say, you know what, sorry folks, we can't bring this to you. Um, go so, go shop somewhere else. You know that that would be much more devastating for investors than than a high cost holiday quarter. Hey Spencer, just got about forty five seconds here. I mean, what are your expectations? What are you hearing about what the holiday season will be like for Amazon, and will they be able to meet uh, the demand? Especially as I keep hearing from everybody, I've already seen it. I'm already doing it. I'm ordering online. I've started earlier than before, um, and that's how I'm going to shop this holiday season. Yeah, a lot of that's going to depend on exactly what you said. Are are shoppers going to heed the warnings? Are they going to shop early? Um, and, and a lot of that's going to fall on the, the pain is going to fall on the consumer as well. If you're a procrastinator and you wait to the last minute, you're going to have to pay plenty to get the stuff on time if you, if you can get it at all. All right. We're going to leave it there. Hey, Spencer, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Spencer Soper, he is, of course, Bloomberg News technology and e-commerce reporter writing on all things Amazon. You can check him out as well on Twitter, and you can find him at Spencer Soper. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And back with us is Hillary Kramer. She's president and chief investment officer at A&G Capital Research, author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trend. She is on the phone in New York City. Hillary, did you see the business we cover last week? I did, <laughs> Carol, yes. I have to tell you, we have quoted you so many times. It's all about Chewy, the cover story. And anybody who's been walking around their neighborhoods during the pandemic has seen lots of Chewy boxes on the curb because we know that these are essential items to make sure our pets have everything that they need. I mean, you have talked about Chewy for a long, long time. What's your investment thesis still on the company? Going forward, of course, we have a much fuller valuation uh, hovering in the $70 range, of yeah. course, versus, let's say, the first three times I spoke about the stock on Bloomberg when it was in the low 20s, starting in June 2019 into September 2019, November 2019. <laughs> and I do want to thank you, Bloomberg, you know, Bloomberg, your analysts, 
all of you who, who have listened to me have given me the opportunity to explain my thesis and why a company like Chewy could give someone a 300% return, and indeed it did. And that's why all these investors today have to be so careful because everyone's jumping in head first and they don't realize that when they're buying companies like Trade Desk, they don't realize that, you know, this was a company that had one-tenth of the stock price, you know, a year ago. Right. And they don't realize. And so my thesis on Chewy, I was thrilled to see it. I do think that Chewy could go to $100 a share. I have always maintained that there was uh, this backstop, which is at Amazon would probably love to make an acquisition of Chewy. It makes all the sense in the world. Two, you know, two-thirds right. of Americans own pets. We have had this whole humanization of pets. Chewy as a customer service. Now, of course, luck is always important. They say I'd rather be lucky than good, <laughs> and I did have some luck there in the in the, in the sad sense that, of course, we have had a pandemic and that right, dogs right. and our animals have become more important than ever. But even still, we would have seen a company like Chewy.com uh, rise and rise um, precipitously because. Um, it was very simple and where the differentiation came, and I love that Bloomberg article on Chewy. The whole point is that, yes, Amazon is the 800-pound gorilla, but there are certain products that people do not use Amazon for, and Amazon's amazing growth, so much of it comes from the Amazon Web Services. It's not because they're selling everyone, you know, their milk bone dog biscuits. It's because you have all of these software companies, you know, like the Z-Scalers, which, you know, are, are, are doing so well, that are using Amazon Web Services because nobody, none of these companies want to put their software onto their actual um, you know, onto their, on, they don't want to download it. They want everything to be cloud-based. Right. Um, and which, which reminds me, you know, usually I only speak positively, but if you take a look at HP Enterprises, there's a reason why that stock, you know, trades around $10 a share. It's because no one is buying software. Everything is this annuity-based um, model now, which is, you know, you pay by the month and uh, you, you access all the software, including cybersecurity software, you know, offline. Is it a, you know, on a day when we're expecting earnings from HP, the old HP, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that was the company everyone thought, okay, that's the old one, that's the boring one, we're not excited. HPE is what we're all excited about. HP is actually up on the year, not so for HPE. Right. And, and that's as simple as that, because we have seen such a, a dramatic change in the way that businesses utilize software, download what mm. they use in terms of, you know, that whole kind of cloud-based, the cloud-based um, the cloud-based lifestyle that we have now, and it doesn't matter if it's human resources stocks, as I just said, cybersecurity stocks, or, you know, every kind of integration, Salesforce. Right. That, so, that's the way we go. All right. So, Hillary Kramer, what's the next Chewy, in your view? I have boring Chewies, but it'll make you money. <laughs> we go everywhere looking for stocks. And anyone who really wants to try to make money out, of, out there, you got to go for some of these smaller um, insurance companies. Companies We love um, safety insurance, SAFT, a 4.9% dividend yield. It's a small cap, a $1.1 billion uh, market cap here, 84% institutional ownership. And it's every kind of insurance. It's, it's a whether it's umbrella insurance, title, homeowners, 
this is the direction where you're going to get a cheap stock. Our other one that we love is Old Republic, O-R-I. That in particular specializes, amongst other some funky insurances, specializes in uh, title insurance. So O-R-I, the book value is $18, and the stock of O-R-I Old Republic Insurance is at $21, and you have a 4.6% dividend yield, and so get the title insurance, get the aeronautical aerospace insurance, and that is where the money will be made because we just, I mean, look, this word software, okay, I have to say, Carol, remember Groucho Marx and you had that show and everyone looked for the word, it was that word, if you said the word, a toy duck would like come down that looked like Groucho, and anything today that you say the word software, cloud-based software, that's what it is. It just gets bought up. And, uh, and, and, and of course, you know, I, I do have a growth portfolio, and I have investors that want to see growth names. And so what do you do? You hold your nose, and you do what you can, and I just try to take them out as quick yeah. as I can once we get those, uh, you know, once, once we make the number and we get some return. But uh, these are, these are nosebleed stocks right now. They really are. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we're seeing a rotation. Let's say, you know, the Dow, what an amazing day on the Dow. But you also have to look and realize Dow, you know, the, 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 the Dow has Boeing in it these days, right? So Boeing had a, you know, finally went back over $200 a right. share this month. You have Apple in there and Microsoft and J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. So everything is changing as we know it. But uh, yeah. we all have to realize that these are these are very precarious times we're in. Everyone needs to be careful. I have rose-colored glasses, Carol. You know, I'm like bull, 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 buy, buy, buy. That's but always just, how I am. But now I right. want to say we all have to be careful and just 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 wait until we see what kind of um, you know changes we're going to have in yeah. impact. You know, all right. What kind of selling we'll have? Got- Got it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, and we all know when it comes to something like a vaccine, it's still going to take a little while to get to the other side of this. Hillary Kramer, thank you so much. President and Chief Investment Officer at A&G Capital Research, joining us on the phone in New York City. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.